0: Welcome to Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs, the podcast for busy and high-performing entrepreneurs and leaders who are looking to create more energy and optimize their health while upgrading their brain and personal performance with precision. I am your host, Julian Hayes II. I've been involved with health and performance for over a decade. This podcast was created for the high performer who is unapologetically ambitious, the one who moves at a fast pace and operates with an edge, the one who wants to become superhuman. Nothing here is fluff, gimmicky or feel good. I have little to no interest in simply helping you improve your life. I want to help transform it. By listening to this podcast, expect to have a body that feels just as good as it looks. Expect to possess a swagger and style that gives off an infectious vibe. Expect to command the stage or any boardroom you walk into with your executive presence. And lastly, expect to become your most enhanced self so you can live a limitless life. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Julian Hayes II, back at it again with another fascinating guest with a inside a fascinating company on a topic that I have not covered here at all. So I'm very excited to get into this. I am talking with Rob Roscoe. He is the Director and Chief Scientific Officer of Midasin Innovations Group. This is a biotechnological and digital technology company aiming to transform the treatment of mental health disorders and addiction. So without further ado, Rob, how is it going today? Oh, it's great. Thanks for having me, Julian. Thank you. I, I'm glad we got to make this interview happen. We had a couple of reschedules on here, but this uh, psychedelics and therapies and mental health is um, seems like it's an increasing popular topic and a prevailing prevailing issue today in the world. So before That's we cool. get started, um Let's go back a little bit and get your origin story. So if we looked at you as a child, would we have guessed that you're doing exactly what you're doing right now?
1: I think uh, it wouldn't be surprising, but the details, I think, wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, or, you know, people that knew me wouldn't have been able to guess the details, but looking at it in hindsight, I don't think they would be surprised. I've always been really uh, interested in, you know, technical things, engineering, science, and so, uh, you know, the application of science, and specifically in this case, you know, pharmaceutical science to business, I think is uh, kind of right in line with where my interests have always been, so.
0: So. You know, speaking of that, what's what's your background a little bit? So what'd you go to school for and study and, and everything?
1: Absolutely. So I've had kind of an interesting, uh, you know, path to where I'm at now. I started out in a track really looking at being a professor, a professor of uh, biology. And so I um, was working in a PhD program for um, evolutionary biology and genetics and really use that um, in hindsight as a way to gather a number of skills that then I've then moved into the, the business sector, into the private sector and utilize. But specifically in that, um, you know, PhD program, I developed skills around genetic engineering, drug design, uh, bioinformatics, uh, genomics, etc. And then these are then acted as a really nice foundation to move into my uh, current career. And so before Midasyn, um, I worked in the cannabis startup space and actually um, spearheaded a, a patent portfolio around um, Making both uh, pharmaceutically tailored uh, cannabis um, formulations, as well as also um, uh, industrial improvements to cannabis plants at the genetic level, uh, patented and using those for massive uh, yield increases that company actually uh, sold to one of the bigger Canadian uh, cannabis companies. And then uh, that sort of led to uh, my opportunity to, to found Midasin, but it's been a um, you know, sort of an interesting pathway where uh, initially I was on the, the track of uh, becoming a professor and would have been, you know, at this time, and, you know, people I was in graduate school, you know, have professorships, et cetera. And so it's a interesting uh, sort of, you know, bifurcation of the path. It's been a, a fun one.
0: What's the um, are there similarities between the cannabis space when it was getting started, you know, because it's pretty mainstream now. At least I mm-hmm. think so, compared to more of the psychedelic space right now. And it seems like it's in its infancy stages. Do they have any similarities?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a few strong similarities and a lot of really big differences. And I think the the you know the biggest difference is that the cannabis space has mature, matured into really something that's analogous to uh, the alcohol industry in a lot of ways. You know, there's dispensaries that look a lot like liquor stores. It's a consumer product, et cetera. And I don't really see the psychedelics industry moving in that way at all. I really see this maturing into, um, you know, tailored medical use, applied medical use in a controlled setting and uh, by physicians. And there's, you know, huge promise in that the uh, thing that has been the strong similarity, though, is there's a um, strong overlap in the group of people, the investors, the uh, people that are interested in the space, the business people, the um, uh, journalists that have covered both. And so the community of people is quite, quite similar. But I think the the way that the two will mature over time is going to be completely different.
0: So what was some of the origin story around Midasin and your interest in getting involved in it?
1: Absolutely. So I think you know, if you ask me as a um, you know an early career scientist, you know which has more potential, uh, you know, development of uh, you know pharmaceuticals from the cannabis plant or from uh, psychedelics in general, these serotonin agonists that are quite uh, diverse, I would have said the the psychedelics from the beginning. And so this was really you know when we founded Midas and myself, uh, Damon uh, and Josh, my co-founders, we really you know the three of us recognized um, at the time and you know, 2020 and really around the turn of 2020, um, this kind of trifecta, if you will, of strong public interest, strong interest from the investor community, like I mentioned, which was, you know, partly the same as the the cannabis investor community. And then most importantly, um, there was a strong body of science that was actually supporting that, hey, we can actually use, you know, psilocybin for, um, you know, reducing, uh, you know, addiction. We can use it for depression. We can use it for all of these different applications where there hadn't actually been a whole lot of innovation in um, medicine. You know, There hadn't been new treatments coming out. And so this was something that the three of us recognized and the fact that those factors were all in play, you know, it, it made for the, the right time to start the company.
0: So, you know, you, when you're speaking on addictions and just therapy in general uh, mm-hmm. before we go into kind of what you all are doing there, it's the current state of therapies and addictions. So it seems like the success rate is not that high. Am I wrong on that assumption? No, you're not wrong at
1: all. I think there's a... um there's two factors at play. You have to think about with, um, you know, treatment of addiction is one is, uh, you know, does the person stop using the the substance of uh, the addiction? You know, can they reduce that use? But then also how durable is that treatment? You know, a year out, two years out, five years out, how hard is it for that person to, um, you know, remain abstinent from whatever substance was their, uh, you know, substance of choice? And I think all of our treatments currently, especially in the, that longevity section of the um, equation, really lack. And you see a lot of you know patients going back and you know relapsing over and over. These sorts of patterns, and so that's where um, you know I think there's really a, a lacking in current uh, current treatment options.
0: So, as you guys were getting started, um, was is psilocybin, I guess the main one that you guys.
1: Yeah. So when we started, we did a survey of really kind of, you know, what was the literature that was out there supporting medical use of psychedelics and then which of your classical psychedelics had the best, you know, foundation uh, in academia, as well as also what was the closest fit for medical use. If you um, compare, you know, I think at that time the two that would be, you know, had the most data behind them would be either psilocybin or LSD. And one of the things that's actually a, a core goal of ours is shortening the duration of activity of these drugs. If you think about a therapist, if you know, you put um, think about this from the therapist's point of view when a patient is undergoing one of these treatments, they need to be um, uh, chaperoned, uh, you know, guided, if you will, through the whole experience. And so that actually requires two therapists per one patient for eight hours with psilocybin, six to eight hours with psilocybin. With LSD, for instance, that's 12 hours. And so we made our our choice based on a combination of these factors, which one was the best starting point for use in therapy because of the time course, other properties of the drug, et cetera. And then also what had the, the best um, foundation and uh, really the, that was the, the summation of it. But I think all of the classical psychedelics, so your LSD, uh, D, uh, DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin, et cetera, all of them are not perfect fits for use in a medical setting. And there's a lot of things that can be done to improve them so that they'll work better um, in a you know a combination with therapy or other, other medical applications.
0: What are some of the more common misnomers or resistances that you guys have have dealt with when it comes to psychedelics? Because um, if I probably go talk to the average person in my family and tell them that, Hey, I, I used psilocybin a couple of years ago, it was a transformative experience, a beautiful experience that I had. And I'm pretty sure it helped unlock some creativity in my brain, but I can't prove that. Yeah. What, what would you, what would be some of the common things that you would come up against?
1: So, I mean, I think the, the most common is just this sort of, you know, knee jerk uh, drug war reaction, if you will, that, you know, it's all psychedelics or all drugs are evil and, you know, that there can't be positive things that come out of that. I think there's been a big change, though, that's happened in the last, um, you know, say uh, five or 10 years, especially with, um, you know, the a couple of the the books by Michael Pollan, for instance, that have seen really, you know, sort of wide readership. And I think there's a, a growing acceptance that if used correctly in the correct context that psychedelics can actually, you know, help people uh, heal and be beneficial to their mental health. But it is a mixture at the moment of reactions, you know, from this sort of, you know, positive curiosity on one side or a highly skeptical uh, negative uh, ire on the other. But the the thing that to me as a scientist always wins the day is the actual data. And the data is really, really strong. I mean, if you look at these applied clinical trials that have been done out of either uh, Johns Hopkins or Imperial College London especially, um, you know, there's there's strong data that there's more than a placebo signal with these uh, drugs and that there's a, interesting property other than that they allow um, adults to regrow neurons in a way that's not normally um you know not normally present and so there's also a biomedical you know reason that you can point to it's not just uh someone's you know anecdotal uh you know experience at a certain point it's also you know you can you point to the biomedical reason and at this point we can we can really do both which is a much more powerful argument
0: Speaking of data, you mentioned a study, uh, from John Hopkins, and I think it was the spoken cessation. Yep. So what what was that? What was the details of that? Absolutely.
1: So this is really the, the focus of the company right now. What we've done is we partnered with Johns Hopkins to, um, run the final stages of work that they've really been working on for the last eight or 10 years. And this is some of what's been widely uh, published um, out of the the work of uh, Dr. Matt Johnson uh, and the the psychedelic center um, at Johns Hopkins. And what what the concept really is, is a single use of psilocybin paired with uh before and after therapy sessions and the the concept is is that you can take habitual smokers so people that have uh smoked for well over a decade or you know pack a day or more smokers and have tried and failed to quit multiple times and what we've seen so far in their um you know work in the last 10 years is that um this combination of preparatory therapy, a psilocybin usage, and then after therapy um, can, uh Result in quit rates of sixty percent or more, and including uh, you know durable quit rates, you know well out beyond the you know say first uh, three months or six months, and so it's really promising. But the specifically what we're doing is um, launching a phase two b clinical trial with uh, uh, Dr. Matt Johnson as the uh, primary investigator, and the purpose of this is to take what to this point has been an academic project. And then, um, uh, prepare it for approval with the FDA for uh, prescription use. And so really take, you know, this promising uh, result as it stands now and then make it available by prescription for, you know, anybody to, to get from their their therapist or from a specific center.
0: Oh, wow. And I guess, so when we hear about prescriptions, the next thing is, um, are these things, something that you have to take for infinity, I guess, or is there a specific no and here?
1: that's actually this is the most exciting thing and so normally when you think of um medication especially especially medication in the mental health sector or mental health space it's something that you're taking daily uh for months or years on end this is really just one dosage so the the therapy there's you know a number of preparatory therapy ses- sessions leading up to a single day where the patient takes psilocybin mm-hmm. and then a follow-up session and really what you're doing in those therapy sessions is reminding the patient? Why do they want to quit? You know, how negative the smoking is for their health. And it seems really like what's happening. And this is kind of the exciting part is there's a synergy between setting up this expectation with the patients that the psilocybin will um, affect a change in their habitual smoking giving them all the reasons as to why they wanna do that. And then they take the psilocybin, it has a profound experience. It's, you know, w- you know, wildly different than somebody's normal daily experience. And so it does provide that sort of impetus for them to affect change, but then also at a, a neuron to neuron level, um, psilocybin itself allows neurons to regrow. And so that allows in the follow-up, you know, time period right after that single psilocybin dosage, for there to be new um, uh, neuron pathways made in the brain, which is really how thoughts, behavior patterns change at a um, a more, you know, biological level. And so you have these sort of two factors that I believe are really synergistic. And this is what gives us this, you know, strong, uh, you know, like I was saying before, uh, you know, 60% plus. And to me, actually, the the most exciting thing is that 60% sounds like a really good number, but that's only the people that have absolutely completely quit smoke from being habitual smokers, a lot of the remainder of that—you uh, know, 40 percent of so-called—you know—you uh, know—failures within the the clinical data have still reduced their cigarette consumption by almost you know 90 or 95 percent. And so, uh, you know, they they smoke because they've had a, a divorce or a death in the family, and then they requit again on their own. But that's considered a failure, you know, from a, a you know health point of view. That's actually really good. That sort of reduction. So.
0: And so, speaking of neurons, is that um, I think if I remember correctly, I saw another study or, or thing that you guys were looking into, and it was about the modifications at the molecular level. And, and this was this part of it,
1: absolutely. And so, this, this is really what's you know I think changed in the last five years is there's been you know decades of uh, anecdotal uh, evidence that you know you can see strong benefit in mental health conditions with psychedelics, but there wasn't really an understanding of why. And in the last five years, especially out of, uh, there's been a couple of studies out of Yale, for instance, uh, 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 Dr. Kwan there has done uh, some really great work in this area specifically, a couple others stand out as well. But what they've shown is that in animals, if you provide psilocybin or in isolated neurons in a Petri dish, if you provide psilocybin, that there's a defined outgrowth compared to placebo. And this is exactly how thoughts are, um, thoughts and behavior patterns and personality are really you know um, registered in the brain. It's how are all the neurons connected. And so if you think about someone that has a, a addiction, that's a habitual thought pattern. And if you all of a sudden with a um, you know a, a pharmaceutical had this ability to regrow new connections, that usually is only present at this level in childhood, is not present usually in adults. Um, you can really start thinking about how that. Paired with therapy, can allow people to overcome their addictions, to reset those thought patterns, and you know, lay down uh, new pathways that are uh, non you know addiction forming.
0: And you know, uh, a topic that is, I guess, another thing that's prevalent and getting more popular is microdosing, mm-hmm. and specifically for depression or anxiety. So, mm-hmm. have you all looked into that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. This is something that we're really uh, interested in, but have been somewhat guarded with um, knowing that there's, you know, like you're saying, there's a huge interest uh, in the, the popular, um, you know, just in the populace about uh, micro dosing. But the thing from a, a scientist or a pharmaceutical kind of point of view that's um, concerning about microdosing isn't so much the... Um, mental health aspect of it, but, but there's secondary properties to the psychedelics, uh, really any serotonin binding uh, drug where you can also have effects on the cardiovascular system. And there's been drugs in the last few decades that have been pulled off the market that have properties in the cardi- cardiovascular category that are very, very similar to psilocybin, to LSD, etc. cetera. And um, they were pulled off the market specifically for chronic dosing. And so this is where, you know, people think of a traditional uh, sort of recreational use of psychedelics, it's sort of, you know, maybe, you know, pointedly one or a few times, there's maybe not that much risk in that category for developing these heart conditions, but there definitely is for, you know, sustained use over time. And this is something that uh, has been reported, uh, I think in recently in National Geographic, there was a, you know, an article on microdosing and they they brought up uh, uh, this concern as well. And so this is something that we've been We've kind of seen it from po- both sides. You know, There's a strong potential, huge amount of interest, um, but there's this risk factor. And so this is actually something in our uh, research that we've actually addressed. And so uh, a lot of our long-term research outside of the, the smoking succession study that I was just mentioning is how do we improve this category of drugs for medical use? And this is one of the things that we've targeted is that you can maintain the properties that are all related to uh, neurons, neuron binding, et cetera, like we were just talking about but you can remove the binding in the the heart that uh causes this risk factor and so this is something that we've actually done with one of our uh our prototype uh, new molecules uh, we call Myco 005 but this is at the, the benchtop level at the moment so
0: oh wow hmm. so you can extract the properties
1: that cause that exactly you can isolate them in wow. Two, and then decide to keep one and remove the other
0: wow that's that's um and so if I imagine when you can do that with that psychedelic, you can do it with all of them at some point, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's effectively what we're doing is understanding the molecule as a three dimensional structure, and then understanding what part of that structure allows it to bind to one receptor versus another. And if we know where those receptors are located, if we know you know which processes they can control, we can take what was originally you know the parent psilocybin and its its active psilocin. And we can make it much more tailored. And you you can actually apply that to, to the other psychedelics as well. It's something that we are also um, applying in the uh, category for MDMA as well. This is uh, an area that we've been uh, researching as well.
0: So, and as I was doing a little reading uh, before mm-hmm. we got on the call here, um, I saw that you guys are starting to leverage artificial intelligence as well. Yep. And so it yeah.
1: is. Exactly in the category of, how, of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is partly how we're doing it, is that um, the way that we understand these molecules as three-dimensional structures is really twofold. One, we can test how they bind in cells in a Petri dish on the bench top, but we can also model that binding in the computer and then run a whole number of iterative calculations on kind of every small molecular change that we could make to that base structure. And so this is this is how we're using the AI. We can literally model the binding of these receptors and then change, you know, one thing here or there and check one to the next
0: to the next. What's some of the things in store in the future for Midasin? or would you like to see things go?
1: So I think, you know, what we're
0: talking about right now is really what gets me most
1: excited. The fact that we can take something with really strong promise like psilocybin, you know, we can show with smoking cessation as a very, you know, good demonstration of its uh, medical application. And I think those applications, not only from medicine but from the, the broader community, especially the academic community, will then increase over time. And so I'm excited that we can then, in parallel to that, improve these molecules for medical usage because like i was saying at the beginning as they're sort of you know provided from nature there's a lot of medical potential a lot of potential for treatment but they're not great fits you know if you have a patient that uh, wants to undergo a psilocybin session you need two therapists with that patient for um, you know six or eight hours, that becomes incredibly expensive, and so you know the ability to shorten that time, which is one of the things that we're doing with our research as well, is really kind of uh, what excites me. You now, these are how do we improve this category so that more patients can get access to this, and it's really in a you know a tangible way, like I'm saying with uh, um, you know the time reduction. So
0: that's, that's what excites me. What's been one of the more challenging aspects of this endeavor?
1: I think the the thing that's been most challenging is sort of related to one of your earlier questions is perception. You know, there's uh a, Especially from, uh, you know, the financial sector, there's been a, a tug of war really between, you know, is this a you know, pharmaceutical uh, type category or is this a cannabis type category? And I think it's been clearly kind of demonstrated at this point. It's a pharmaceutical type category, but that, um, you know, undercurrent is uh, made for um the funding and the financial uh, sort of backing of just companies in the sector to be, you know, very volatile. So I think that's been the most most uh, challenging thing. Is that there's you know really strong fundamentals as far as you know clinical application, medical usage, but um, you know there's just uh, skepticism until it's proven. And so uh, you know uh, funding and funding climate has always been a, a tricky thing with this. So,
0: what advice would you give to to some of the entrepreneurs out there who? are I guess entering these types of industries where they have to battle these perceptions and I guess biases and in a, in the essence you're re you're doing a lot of re-educating
1: yeah yeah I think, one being really, you know, clear with communication is incredibly important so that you can actually accomplish that re-education when it's necessary. But I think the most important thing is, you know, believing in the business that you're in and believing in the potential of what you're developing, you know, uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, i if you ask me as a college student, whether there's potential in what we're doing now, I would have said yes. And this is, you know, something I've believed in for a long time. And so that, that sort of, you know, um, you know, depth of belief, plus also being able to back it up with facts, with data, with evidence, uh, you know, at least leaves me feeling like I'm in a good spot to rebuttal any of those, you know, negative concerns or those sorts of things. And I think that's kind of the mindset you need to have.
0: What's some of the things that you do personally to keep yourself healthy and balanced on top of, you know, being part of such a, of a growing company?
1: Definitely. No, it's uh, it's definitely demanding. And so it's something that, you know, I, I'm constantly, you know, balancing my time. But the the thing I always like to do is I um, really spend almost all of my time outside of the company, either with my family, I have uh, two small children. And then, uh, you know, so that's a, a very, you know, nice, completely different mindset and relaxing, et cetera. And then I also um, try to make sure to get, you know, a good bit of exercise. I live in Colorado in the Front Range. And so I can take really good advantage of, you know, hiking and mountain biking and skiing. And that's really kind of, uh, th- those are my, uh, releases if you will. And I think, uh, the fact that they're, um, active is there's a lot of benefits to, you know, that sort of physical activity matched with, uh, you know, sort of more stressful work for, you know, whatever reason, it's a, a good benefit.
0: Yeah. If you were a genie and, uh, uh, and you can have it any way you want, what is a, G- a dream project that you would work on right now?
1: In a lot of ways, this really is the, the dream project. I mean, I think if I had, you know, a, a genie's wish it would be to, you know, just expand what we're, we're doing, you know, hugely like, you know, I was mentioning the smoking secession is really an example indication. It's what mm-hmm. we think is the most, you know, straightforward, you know, example of, you know, really strong success in this category. But the basic ability to regrow neurons at a medical level, I mean, that should also apply to things like uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, depression, you know, know, it's it's this huge category of potential um, diseases that we can uh, address with this category of drugs, at least. And so my, my sort of genie wish, I guess, would be for just, uh, you know, infinite resources to uh, apply towards that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking uh, if smoking is an addiction this should also theoretically work with all other sorts of addictions you know you know yeah. any, any type of addiction right because like you said it's a pattern in our head that's a habitual yeah. pattern and and the psychedelic is going to help break that
1: no, that's it exactly. And we're treating the the craving side of it, the the mental, you know, sort of thought patterns around the addiction. And we've actually had a lot of strong interest from um, people that are running trials for methamphetamine specifically, which is, I think, kind of wildly considered one of, or widely considered one of the, um, you know, most addictive substances. You know, when I talk to those physicians, uh, they mention how you know patients that have. Uh, you know, quit methamphetamine for years, still have cravings as if it was day one of when they were quitting, you know, there's mm-hmm. really strong interest there. There's a, um, a, a strong study out of, I think it's a combination of NYU and Yale that's looking at the same concept for uh, alcohol use disorder. Uh, there's interest in opioid use. And so, yeah, we, we, you know, in the long run think that this is broadly applicable to substance use uh, disorder in general. So definitely excited about
0: that. Move well, I'm definitely interested in seeing where this goes, and and like you and like you mentioned, it just expanding more in the future. So I would definitely keep my eyes open for that. And um, I think this has been a very good conversation on an issue that I think many of us don't think about, but it's an area that could easily. And desperately need to upgrade. And so I think you guys are doing a very good job on the path to, to working and and addressing that. So, um, where can, where would you like listeners to learn more about you and Midasyn and everything that you're up to?
1: Absolutely. So we have a website, mitison.com uh, that they can go to to find uh, you know, all about the company. It outlines our uh, different research projects with our uh, drug development, talks about our clinical trial with Johns Hopkins, as I was mentioning earlier, and then also has a, a news feed with all of our news. So you can kind of see the different uh, headlines as they're coming out. So that's that's really the best place to uh, find out about us.
0: OK, and I will have that in the show notes. And thank you again, Rob, for joining me. And for the listeners out there, stay awesome, be limitless, and as always, never stop upgrading. Bye-bye. If you are a high-performance entrepreneur, leader, or executive looking to supercharge your energy and become the most enhanced version of yourself without the guesswork and you're tired of cookie-cutter templates, randomly guessing and hoping the next thing will work, and you actually want a precise and bespoke health optimization and performance roadmap that is in-depth, data-driven, and custom-tailored specifically for you, then my superhuman coaching programs are probably a good fit for you. No stones will be left untouched. Now, it's not a good fit for you if you are someone who does not want to invest the time, the commitment, nor the energy into getting the results. But if you are someone who is ready to start their end of one journey, upgrade their body and brain with precision, and truly live a limitless life, I invite you to apply by heading over to theartoffitnessinlife.com forward slash us and you'll get the opportunity to talk with me for 60 minutes and we'll take a deep dive into where you currently are and where you're trying to go and then we'll decide if this is a good fit for you and me. And if it is, I'll extend an invitation for us to work together. Once again, to apply, head over to theartoffitnessandlife.com forward slash us. I look forward to hearing from you.